welcome to the Adventure Together podcast. In this episode, Guy Miller talks to Sam Albury, currently located in Bermuda. Sam is a pastor, apologist, author and speaker. He has written a number of books, including Is God Anti-Gay? What God Has to Say About Our Bodies? and Seven Myths About Singleness. So it's great to have uh, Sam Aubrey, who's a friend of mine going back many, many years and served as well at West Point with us today, uh, chatting about some of the keys of unlocking lessons that maybe God's been teaching him or showing him that can help us all as leaders of churches in the commission family. So Sam, it's really lovely to see you. And I can't believe I'm speaking to you and you are in Bermuda and I'm in <laughs> I'm in Westminster Chapel. But so good to see you. And uh, just tell us a little bit, please, how you have dealt with the last year. What, what are the highs and lows uh, in terms of being in America mostly? What have, have you felt that has has been sort of some of the highlights, but perhaps some of the things that, you you know, you feel that's been really tough for, for you personally or actually for the church. It's great to be with you guys. It's always good to see you. It's been a very, very challenging year. It's not been without the kindness of God um, in different ways. Um, the, the pandemic coincided with me trying to, to move from one country to another um, and also with me having to sort of transition in my my ministry. So there there was already a lot of upheaval going on when the pandemic hit. And I was already sort of halfway between the UK and the US moving wise when it all happened. I spent sort of half the lockdown in the UK and half the lockdown in in the US and had two quite different experiences, as you would imagine. In the the UK, I bubbled with a family I know well who are very tolerant of having a a guest come and stay for. I stayed with them for about six months. um, And that made the world a difference to me, um, not not being in a in a building just on my own um i need to have others around me to stay relatively sane in america we had a a stay at home order for a, a few weeks and again i sort of did a sort of quasi bubble type thing with a with a couple of other friends in the neighborhood and and so let's just see lots of each other so that the upside of all of that was was not being as alone as i could have been as as much as i know many other people were. And it gave me an opportunity to go a lot deeper with a smaller number of people, um, which actually, I think, led to some sort of deeper friendships, um, a greater sense of intimacy with those particular people um, than I'd had before. Um, the, the heartache was not being able to see other people as much as I would want to, not being able to do the work I, I love doing. And um, yeah, there's there's some very, very precious friends I I still have not been able to see since the end of 2019. And that's, you know, I can Skype someone, I can FaceTime someone, but it it hurts not being able to physically see certain friends because of all of this. I mean, the, 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 uh, the Zoom and the technology we're using today, I mean, I think it's been one of the great blessings and discoveries of of our modern age that you can connect i'm I'm connecting with our friends in india uh, as they go through their crisis at the moment and it's a wonderful thing to be able to see someone and pray with them and just encounter them but there is something that we really miss isn't there in terms of that flesh and blood sharing a meal presumably you you would Travel. We would have travelled a lot more in prior to COVID. Would you have been sort of on the planes a lot more? I would have been. Yeah, a lot of trips that uh, were, were cancelled in in 2020 and, and still being cancelled now with with ongoing restrictions. And yes, it is. I, I echo that entirely. I mean, thank God for Zoom. I mean, we 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 get fed up with it pretty quickly, but the alternative was nothing. Um, so it, it actually has been a huge blessing to have even that form of contact with people. And if this pandemic had happened, you know, even 15 years ago, it would have been such a different experience. Our live stream capabilities were not where they are now. Um, as ministries, we'd have had much less to be able to offer people. Um, so we can be very thankful for the technology that we do have, but it, it only underlines the fact that we, we, we've been created as embodied people and there's there's a reason for that there's something about physicality and physical presence that does something fulfills something that that digital contact just can't do um and you see that in the bible john john writes in one of his letters you know i've got much to say to you 
but I long to see you face to face that our joy may be complete. There's a, there's a, an incompleteness to our joy when we can only see each other via a screen. Um, there's something about being in the same room as someone sitting across from the, at the same table and being able to hug them that makes such a difference. And how does that work? I mean, what was your experience like? I mean, one of the things over here, we've obviously all been running uh, pell-mell to get online facilities for even the smallest of churches so we can do some form of online church. Uh, have you had this, a similar experience in the States? And and how are you reading that? Because some, some of the modern prophets are saying this is going to be with us for life. The online church is the way forward. Whilst I think the, the feelings that I've picked up in some of our leaders are actually something of a hybrid in a way forward that for lock-ins and shut-ins, it's a wonderful uh, thing to have, but not as a everything you just said, not in terms of a substitute. You can't surely do this as a substitute for hugging and praying and weeping and celebrating. How's your experience of all that been? Yeah, I think it's – so the church I was at, I've been at in Nashville, had had already had a live stream, uh, one of the services live live streamed anyway um, because there's a lot of musicians who are – touring and away and need need to find ways of, of checking in with the ministry with them. So we already had the live stream in place mercifully so that when the pandemic hit, it wasn't a complete change up to have to, to put things online. Um, I think we found that the, for the vast majority of people, being online increased our appetite to come back physically. Um, and people have done that very enthusiastically. There are some who are more cautious still with, with health vulnerabilities, and that's entirely understandable. So people have been returning at a different rate, but I've sensed there's been a real hunger to return. There may be some who decide, actually, you know, staying at home in my PJs on a Sunday morning is is more preferable. And that's that's a shame um there are those for whom the live stream is a blessing because they can't come they're they're away with work or they're they're sick or one of the kids isn't well or something else has happened um it's a different story for those perhaps who won't come and there'll be some of those but that's that is their loss um because they'll they'll hopefully get some blessing from the, the live stream they'll get a sense of of learning and growth but they won't really be filled out and rounded out as as the kind of believers god wants us to be which only really happens through that in-person mutual encouragement when we when we gather together um so there'll be a few of those um have you had any sort of the- theological sort of uh curveballs in terms of uh, early on there was quite a strong feeling being circulated can you break bread what about mm. baptisms online any any of those strong reactions from uh, your church uh, yeah we um i don't think we attempted any baptisms during during the pandemic we we've we're sort of trying to catch up with those things now with communion one thing we did do was um there's a there's a fairly significant car park next to the church, so we we got an AM radio transmitter and did a drive-in communion. So we got everyone to drive into the parking lot, get your car radio tuned to whatever it is. We'll the 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 band is up there on the side of the of the car park, and the the stewards are there handing you the the elements through the car window. Um, and that that was something. It wasn't obviously what you would you want, but it was still a sense of we're still gathering. Even those who were most vulnerable could still do that because they were still in their car the whole time. Um, and it meant you had some feeling of coming together, um, even if it was all you know looking through your windscreen to, to someone else's car kind of thing. Um, if gave us a, gave us a feeling of being in the same place at the same time, which we would obviously lacked. Um, but because of that, obviously, you can't do that particularly often. We did that I think, four or five times during the year. Um, 
in winter, in, in summer, um, all the rest of it. So, but I, yeah, we, it's hard to, to do a, a normal sacramental ministry during COVID. It's just one of the things that, that can't happen without physical presence. You, you can get away with preaching through a live stream. You can get away with having sung worship through a live stream. Those things can still touch us and, and help us and, and encourage us. You just can't do that. It's harder to do that. And, you know, I know churches where people would have their own little thing of bread bread or wine and just all take it at the same time. And, again, there's there's something to that. But receiving receiving those elements from one another, receiving them together where you can see everybody else um, expressing the same dependence on Christ is is such a powerful thing. And that, that's what we really miss. And so if you were, if COVID's been like, a, I don't know, our, our Joseph experience in prison where the church has been sort of prophetically hopeful for gospel breakthrough, for greater impact in society, if COVID's been like a lockdown and imprisonment, what are you personally carrying for the future that you say, I'm, I'm desperate, desperate guy to see some more of this really in the life of a church. As we gather back for the those first meetings, that first year, we're mm. all getting a little bit, how, how do we do life now? Because we'll all have a slight mm. sort of awkwardness and fears from the past. What is it in your heart that you would sense maybe God's saying or would want to say to the church in the West particularly I'm thinking of, although obviously I'm speaking commissions half of commission is is from india and asia so but even so what would you be feeling in god this is what i feel god is leading us to for the future yeah i think there's there's lots of things actually i mean i'm i'm hoping i won't ever take physical presence for granted again we just never had to think about it before um you turn up to church on a sunday and everyone's there um you you even so take it for granted you think can i can i be bothered to go this week uh whereas now i'm thinking you know why would i ever miss that uh, so i hope that there will be a, a just the joy in being the body of christ together and um, maybe that's one of the things god is is really reminding us of refreshing us in um we've been trending for so many years towards time on our screens and it's as if god has handed us over to that for a year and said okay have your screens and nothing else and see how you find it so i'm wondering if there's a there's a kind of a little bit of disciplining going on and showing us actually there's there's certain things that that screens can't do for us um and that physical presence can so i'm, I'm hoping we will regather with with renewed gratitude just for one another just even just that, you know, when you catch so-and-so out of the corner of your eye singing her, her her heart out and thinking, there's a dear saint who is praising Jesus right now. And that that does something to me, being in the same room as that person and seeing them. Um, the, the language in Hebrews 10 of, you know, don't stop meeting together as someone in the habit of doing, but instead encourage one another, that the opposite of not going to church is encouraging each other. And I'm beginning to realize now how that mutual encouragement happens. It's sometimes it's just by being there. Um, so that that's one thing. Something else that's been interesting is, and I know a lot of churches have found this, but put, having to put all the ministry online, there's obviously all the things that we miss from doing that, but there, there were also some opportunities we maybe didn't see coming. And I've heard in my church and many other churches, people saying things like, you know, there's, there's folks tuning in who would never have come. Um, people saying that, you know, my my unbelieving husband or my, my non-Christian parent is now tuning in. They would never in a, ever physically come to church, but now they're watching it online. So part of me was thinking when this started to happen, is this in the parable of the wedding banquet where the, the wedding master says, okay, let's go to the highways and the byways. Uh, yeah. It felt like God was, is, has been doing some of that and actually pushing through digital media, pushing the gospel into living rooms, onto devices that 
otherwise may have been bereft of any gospel input. so it's been interesting as we've started to regather now. We're we're starting to see people turning up who were never there before, um, and who have who have come in via the live stream because that was a sort of safer first step for them. Um, so I, to sum it all up, I think God is showing us who we really are, uh, and those who you thought were really committed church members. You're beginning to think, okay, maybe they, maybe they weren't, um, and others who you thought would never come ever or show any interest, are bizarrely there on a Sunday morning now that they can be. So, it's just, it's been sort of, I mean, you're right. It's been like a bit of a sifting, hasn't it? It, yeah. it feels like it does feel like there's people that you thought they they will be rock-like through this and actually are now sort of saying, I want to be in my onesie washing church at home. I'm not that interested in coming back. And you're thinking, what? And other people who are probably a little bit on fringy that suddenly are getting an appetite and say, I want to be there. And they're there. I mean, prayer, could you comment on prayer as well? Because one of the things I'm picking up again, this is all usually through email or uh, cards or or, or one-off conversations, is that most churches have rediscovered something of the engine room-like prayer meeting where more numbers have been able to gather. Has that been similar? Yeah, I've heard that a few times, actually, where, you know, obviously during everything being shut down, having to do prayer meetings via Zoom, people discovering... Well, there's, there's like four times the number now that would have been there if we'd done it physically. And that's partly because there's nothing else to do in a lockdown. Um, and also, we're, we're, you know, God has made us more aware of our of our need for him. Um, James 4 was always there in the Bible beforehand about, you know, don't just presume you're going to go to somewhere for a year and do this and that, but but say if it is the Lord's will. We've We've had that kind of... You know, with that 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 truth, really, we've been hit over the head with it in the last eighteen months. That actually, we're not in control, um, and it's humbled us. We're we're far more aware of the contingency now of everything upon the Lord, upon things that we don't even know about. So I'm sure that has helped us into to praying more, and that the key will be not to forget all of these things once we start to come out of it but to keep remembering that and yeah i think one practical thing is you know discovering that actually certain people came to the online prayer meeting mainly because you know childcare issues work schedules commuting whatever it might be made it difficult for them to come personally and, and therefore a hybrid prayer meeting may be a, a good way forward. So there, there will always be those who can physically come, but there'll be actually quite a few who would love to participate who couldn't physically come. And uh, what a way to harness their prayers as well. So, I mean, we're thinking as well with, uh, the you know, you spoke at West Point and we're thinking with West Point internationally, flying people from Spain, Portugal, US, India, all the way to uh, UK for a damp, wet, cold experience. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to can, can we make some, some or part of our meetings where people can connect in, speak in, listen in, in a much more sort of interactive way than just part, you know watching something on a screen? Yeah, I think part of it is when when the lockdown first happened and churches had to, to move online, one of the questions we, we started asking was not just how can we make do, but what is this an opportunity to do that we couldn't have done if we were gathering physically? And, you know, every now and then we'd do, we'd do a Q&A thing after a, after a church service or those who wanted to stick around. Doing that online works easier. That you, some people can have some anonymity if there's a question they want to ask that they'd feel too self-conscious to ask. You know, physically they can do that virtually with with a lot more kind of safety. So there's there's all these things you 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 suddenly realise you can do. You can beam in someone from from Singapore just for 15 minutes to to give you a sense of what God is up to there. Um, those things you, you suddenly have a lot more reach. So. 
some of those things I hope we can carry with us into whatever the new sort of normal ends up looking like. The other thing I think I'm, I'm very conscious of is the church I'm at here in, in the States is 11, 12 years old. Uh, the church I had been at in the UK was 700 years old. Um, but for both, the pandemic was equally disruptive. And there's this, this it's introduced a seam into the ministry that is hugely significant. And never has it been easier to start something new or to stop something that would have been very difficult to stop. Um, it, I keep thinking it, it's like when you when you move house, moving house is the perfect opportunity to accidentally lose certain things you really didn't want to keep. And you can just say, well, we, that kind of got lost in the move and <laughs> you can get away with it, right? That, that horrible thing someone gave you that you've never liked. There's a similar thing going on with this. Um, certain church programs that you've, you've always thought oh, – if it hadn't been the fact that we've been doing this for 50 years, I would never be doing it. Yeah. Coming out of this, actually, this is the time to to, to to get the blank sheet of paper and say, well, actually, we're now not, because this has been such a, a year of disruption, we're not constrained now by what we've always done. Mm. We don't have to do things the way they always have been done because this is all, everything's been shaken up. Um, there's a, that, that tradition has already been interrupted. So it's a really good opportunity for pastors to think through. Let, let's just start from scratch and think, okay, we're now, all of us, whether our churches are, are, are years old or centuries old, all of us now are replanting our churches. Yes. So how do we want to replant them? This is this is a really good opportunity to rethink what we do, who we are, how we do things. What is the, the culture, the vibe, the, the priority of our church? What is the the personality of the church because you're not god willing we're not going to get a second chance to replant a very established church in the way that god is giving us now and i wonder if there's a there's also a sort of a releasing coming of the of the church so whilst before we may you know have our programs and you can't fit another thing into the church program it's so busy and we as church leaders can often be running around like headless chickens. Interesting in, in Bournemouth, because we were we had our lockdown in Bournemouth back in Bournemouth, not in London. And one of our neighbors with us said, let's do some street services. So hmm. we would do, we did six in total. Obviously the major ones, Easter and Pentecost and Christmas and what have you. People came to the end of their drives. We had a loudspeaker and we just did some hymns, a small talk, praying particularly for the needs of the neighbours. So we had 30 to 40 neighbours come out at the end of their drive. What, uh, what impressed me was it was all Christians that the people organising are Christians that are just going along to church on a Sunday, suddenly taking initiative and doing something where very powerful. One, one woman has come into a relationship with God through it. I mean, it's just like... Oh, that's that's quite moving, really. That you know, we've got all our church programs which fill all our diaries, and yet when the believers are given a little bit more space, that a bit more creativity might come out, and we might find, as you say, the things we thought were important, we lost in the move. Yeah, the, the wonderful thing is that God's work has not slowed down in all of this, and it, it's reminded us that actually He's not He's not constrained. Um, he's not dependent on our programs and on our formulas. Um, he, he's, you know, the gospel is not chained. And so whilst we were stuck indoors, the gospel wasn't. Um, it was finding its way <laughs> into to all kinds of places. So I think a lot of a, another reflection I've heard a lot of people sharing is, you know, everyone, we've made busyness into such a virtue in Christian ministry. If you're not busy and rushed off your feet um you're not really pulling your weight and and doing your job properly um i think we've you know the pandemic has, has changed ministry patterns some of us have had more time to to read and pray and think and meditate um and are realizing actually that that is part of the of the work of the lord as well um and just sort of frantically running around the whole time 
actually maybe we weren't getting as much done as we thought we were and maybe we weren't getting as much done as we would have done if we were actually trying to do less things more prayerfully uh, so again there's an opportunity for us to to reevaluate our ministry patterns our own sort of health and balance and and all those kinds of things um Talk to me about reading, Sam, because, I mean, you've written quite a few books now, um, and it'd be interesting just to hear what your favourite book in terms of your writing was. Uh, I think I first uh, got introduced to you with, I don't know if it's your first book, it's God Anti-Gay was the first sort of time I'd heard your name and someone recommended reading it. I love Connected. I love the whole just worship of the Trinity and just getting my feet under the table in that incredible happy land of Trinity. Um, and more latterly, you know, the seven myths of singleness, my wife read it and said, Oh, you got to read this. And I'm going, why, well, you know, I, I think I'm good with singles. And actually I, I felt maybe it was such a powerful message for the church today and coming out of lockdown. Can you maybe comment about why this is a book because you read it, you, you see the, 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 the heading and you think, this is a book for singles. It's not really a book for singles, is it? It's a book for the church. It is, it is a book for the church. And, and the reason for that is because all the Bible's teaching on singleness is given to the church. Um, it's not given to single people. Even when Paul says, now to the, the virgins, I say, um, he's still expecting the rest of the church to listen in. Um, it, it's a word that the whole church need to hear. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things to say on this. If, if we are, as local churches, bodies in the way that Paul says we are, interde- interconnected, interdependence, then just as I, as a single person, have a stake in the marriages in my church being healthy, so too my married friends have a stake in those of us who are single in the church being able to flourish and be healthy in our singleness. Um, that's the way God's designed it. That's part of the beauty of, of church, isn't it? When one part suffers, all parts feel it. Um, so the whole church needs to to get on board with what the Bible says about singleness and, and how to make sure the singles in the church are are flourishing and thriving in their singleness, uh, not, not in spite of it, but because of it. Um, and the other thing is that uh, and there's no real delicate way to put this, but half of over half of married people are going to be single again and through divorce or bereavement and both of which are just unthinkably traumatic. And the, the best time, therefore, to think through singleness is before you're plunged into it in such a, a painful way. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd add is that if, if we've ever got our thinking wrong about singleness, it, it's almost always because we've also got our thinking wrong about marriage. And one of the bits of feedback I hadn't anticipated from the book, but which kind of makes a bit of sense with hindsight, is I've had quite a lot of married people saying this, that the book had helped them think more healthily about marriage, um, simply because if you get singleness out of perspective, you've probably already got marriage out of perspective too. I mean, I love Andrew Wilson, even with the marriage thing. This marriage thing is about that it's yeah. all about that. It's all about the eternal. It's all about the church and Jesus Christ. It was never about marriage. And that was the, the, the high point of life. Actually, the high point for the Christian is always to be looking for that eternal, looking for that joyous in, in sort of encounter with the bridegroom. I just love that. I was asked, I, I, I asked a, a sing, single person in Westminster Chapel, uh, what would you, because they said, oh, you're going to speak to Sam Albury. I'd like to ask him a question. I said, what's your question? And they said, um, as an older single, we're often left to our own devices uh, and assume we don't need any special focus. Why do you think this is? And what, do you, what support do we need in order to be able to live a more fruitful Christian life? Hmm. Yeah, I love that question. Um, I think what we what we really need is is just for the church to be church. I I don't feel like I need a group for forty something singles. Um, maybe there'd be some benefit from getting together with other single guys who are sort of my sort of age bracket and just comparing notes. But I don't feel like I need to be demographicked. Um, if I can 
massacre our language. Um, what what I do need is to to know myself to be and to tangibly feel myself to be part of the family of God's people. Um, and mercifully, I do feel that in my church. Um, I don't feel like anyone's project, but I do feel like I'm I'm genuinely part of a family. I, you know, um, there are people who are mothers and fathers to me. There are people who are brothers and sisters, and there are people who are sons and daughters to me in a way that feels very, very, not just token, but but real. Um, I was just a, you know, a, a, someone who's become a son in the faith. I was, I was just at his high school graduation um, and helping him kind of get ready for heading off to university. One of my best friends is, is in his early 70s and is a real father to me in the faith. Um, it's when, when the church is even vaguely approximating what God has called us to be, there's, there's nothing else like it. Um, and I feel deeply embedded within this, this relational matrix. Um, so I, I think all of us need to realize that that relational interconnected is something God has designed for the sake of everyone. Um, it's not that, Hey, you, you married people are, are basically sorted. Try and help your singles a bit more. It's actually all of us need this. Um, there's something lacking in your nuclear family life. If you're not involving the wider church family and having that kind of glorious interplay that happens. Um, that's wonderful. I mean, it's, it is something then. It's such a it's such a rich book. I mean, I would, you know, people are going to be watching this, and I'd say to all of our leaders, just buy it and and read it because it it, it, it again, it's the church. It's the church as a family, and uh, single people being mums and dads and brothers and uncles. It isn't that somehow married couples have got a monopoly on sort of understanding these things. It's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Have you been writing anything else or are you thinking about writing anything else? Yeah, I've actually got a book coming out um, in, in a few weeks' time, um, which is one I've been working on for, for about four years. It's been a long process. Um, it's been on my heart for a long time to, to write it. It's what the, what the Bible says about our bodies. Um, I think that the title is what God has to say about our bodies. So it's looking at, and again, this was all pre-COVID. I was thinking this through, but COVID has just kind of highlighted the need for it. What, what does it mean that God has made us physical? Um, what, what does the Bible say about the fact that we are, our, our bodies are created and, and fearfully and wonderfully made? What does it mean that our bodies now as Christians belong to Jesus? Um, what does it mean that they will one day be redeemed? That they will be resurrected and and refitted for the for the age to come? So, basically, I'm I'm looking at how the gospel is good news for your your physical body. So, looking at things like sex and uh, eating and exercise, things like yeah, that. those things come into it as well. Um, the, the New Testament is not silent on those things. Um, and in fact, it, it's amazing how much of our discipleship in the New Testament is spoken of in physical terms. Um, and in, in bodily terms, that the, the body is not incidental to our our walk with the Lord. Um, so it's it's been actually quite refreshing for me diving into to all of that. Um, and and not least, once you start to put these issues on the table, you people begin to open up about all kinds of anxieties, hopes, fears that, that are all to do with their bodies. Um, so many men especially have opened up to me about issues of body shame, um, insecurity. Uh, what, does it, what does it mean to be a man? Um, and then just to think through, okay, if our, our bodies now belong to Jesus, then the only person our bodies really need to please is Jesus. And he's, he's a far kinder master to our bodies than, than our culture is. Um, and the body that is pleasing to Jesus is the body that's consecrated to him. As we, as we offer the parts of the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 6, to, to God as instruments of righteousness, that is, that is a body that is, 
is pleasing to our maker. Um, so lots of things to think about there. Um, so that, yeah, that, that's coming out in a few weeks' time. Well, yeah, that sounds a re- really suitable and sort of apt in terms of, as you say, when we, when we went to Bournemouth 21 years ago, we, we, we noted that in the summer you had to be careful about going down on the beach. Our local beach is literally sort of a five-minute walk away because in those days topless bathing was, was very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, when you you go down to the same beach, I don't think I've seen a topless woman down there for years. But you get loads of men which are, who have got incredible muscles, tattoos, and they're they're sort of strutting up and down the sort of uh, area. And I said to her, they've replaced the sort of. They seem to be the sort of new image bearers of this is what you need to look like, and I'm proud of. And again, we're living in this age where we are being bombarded with the visual image of what it means to look like a woman, look like a man. And, and, and for most of us, <laughs> it feels like we might as well give up then, yeah. taking my shirt off. <laughs> yeah, so and that, that's, it's a real issue. It's it is, such a real it's issue. And it, it's, it's one that men have not often felt much opportunity or safety in, in verbalizing. Um, but it's a, it's a massive un, unaddressed issue pastorally. Um, I mean, my, my, my kids joke that, that not even mum sees dad take his shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> I like keeping all my clothes on. Uh, so have you read it? I, I mean, this has been a good time to read. I mean, mm. most of us have sort of dipped into some good, solid stuff. What one or two books have you read that you'd say to leaders, leaders of churches across the world, this is a really accessible, good, strengthening book, encouraging book for you to read at this time? Yeah, the, the one that obviously springs to mind for me, and, and I know it's it's on many people's lists of, of highlights of 2020, is, is the book Gentle and Lowly um, by Dane Ortland, um, just for opening up this whole glorious theme in the Bible of, of Christ's heart towards us, even as we limp our way through this life. Um, that was incredibly refreshing to read. Um, and I kept turning each page thinking, really? Is this, I mean, really? Is this, is this true? And then he keeps giving you verse upon verse that show you that, you know, there's a chance out there God might actually like you. <laughs> Um, that, that's been that's just been hugely refreshing um, to me. Probably the, the thing I most enjoyed reading in the pandemic. I think I've read it three times now, and I, I rarely reread things. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've I've been reading. Um, Did you read Rejoice and Tremble in the same sort of uh, ilk of that? Mike read? Yeah, yeah, I love Mike's Mike stuff, and read that. Um, yeah, that came out a few months later, I think. Um, again, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that as well. I'll read. Anything Mike Mike produces, I'll I'll get even before I know what it is. Um, so they, those are two two particularly um, good books. I'm I'm working through um, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is I think really essential reading for any pastor in the West at the moment. Um, and I'm I'm sure for your your dear friends in India and Asia, this this stuff is is coming your way as well um so that that's been good at just helping me think how we've ended up where we are in western culture now and our our views of identity and self-expression and and sexual ethics and all those things and how they're all bound up together um so that that's been another sort of really significant so maybe maybe pick up on that a little bit in terms of uh, because in in that book he talks about sort of like the 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 self the religious self and then he talks about the sort of political self or the monetary self then he comes to the philosophical self which we're living with today where someone says what I feel emotionally is what is real and that that is what is true for me for Christian leaders it feels like I mean when I started out you you had 
an understanding of maleness and femaleness. You had an understanding of same-sex attraction and the, the, the text you would go to. Now it seems like to try and speak to the modern age, it feels like you're playing hopscotch on a minefield because it feels like it's LGBTQ. It, it just, there are so many people potentially you can offend and, and by speaking, how, how, how have you navigated that? And what, what sort of lessons would you pass on to leave? Should we just keep our mouth shut or how do we speak into the culture which is so confusing? Yeah, it's such a big issue. I mean, we, we can't keep our mouth shut because... Our, our culture is much better at catechism than we are. And uh, people are being so thoroughly discipled by our culture and how they understand identity and fulfillment and sexuality and all these things. Um, if we keep silent, people are not going to be unformed. They're simply going to be formed by by the world rather than by the word. Um, but to speak well, we need to listen well and understand people well. And again, it it's you know we we hear phrases like the gay community the trans community um but really what we're dealing with is just is individual people and uh everyone's story is different and is is unique and is um worthy of our our great care and attention so um not everyone is an activist <laughs> so not every trans person or not every, not every gay person you meet is is going to be you know trying to campaign you into to some position most people just want to lead a quiet life and get on with things so i think the thing that's that's helped me the most is is the the proverb in in proverbs 18 i think it's verse 13 that says if you give an answer before you have heard it is folly and shame um we we need to listen well in order to know how to respond well and it's good to, to you know, the, the Carl Truman book I, I have been recommending helps us with some of the kind of big picture stuff. Um, but listening well most often happens on an individual level. So as, as you meet a neighbor, a friend or a family member or whoever it might be who, who shares something of being trans or being gay or whatever it might be, Actually, the, the best thing to do is, is simply to listen and to say, I'd love to, I would love to hear more of your story. If you feel comfortable sharing it, I'd love to hear how you've got to this place and what it's been like. What is it, what is it like being you? Because um, that, that will help us, I think, know where to begin sharing Christ with someone. If, if someone is, has been very confused about their identity, then I, I want to introduce them to the Jesus who, you know, when the, the, the woman at the well meets him. She, the first thing she says afterwards is, meet, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? We, think we, we don't really get ourselves until we, we meet the one who made us. If someone has been hugely hurt in their story, and that's been part of what is shaping them, I want them to, to meet the one who says that a bruised reed he will not break, that this is someone you can trust your tenderest uh, most raw bruises too, and he is not going to stomp all over you. But it, it tends to be listening that gives you a sense of really what is animating someone, what what someone's what someone's deepest fears are, and and all those sorts of things. Um, I found it in, I found it interesting. Basically, now we live right next door to uh, the chapel here, Heather and I, and uh, we will often sit with people on the streets uh, of Victoria, homeless people, and there's a disproportionately high uh, gay number of people, and a lot of them have faced such horrible hostility families throwing them out, alienation, and then, of course, society, even though. We, we we say we're a tolerant society. It, it's the proof of the pudding is often that they are beaten up, they are isolated in in, in ways. And to hear that encouragement from you, just to sit and listen to them, and what what's it like to be you, mm. is such a is such a great way in just to listen listen to them rather than to make all these assumptions of. 
as you say, I think you read the, the danger of reading Carl Truman is you think they're all political activists and they've all got their ducks in a row and they see us in this particular way. Well, I, I think Christ showed compassion and, and wept outside a friend's tomb. And yeah. I wonder if that's something more of how we need to lead out of lockdown, really, with a greater degree of softness. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to Mark 6, just before the feeding of the 5,000, we're, we're told that, um, you know, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, you know, when, when Jesus sees the lostness of the lost, he he has compassion on them. Uh, too often when, when Christian leaders see the lostness of the lost, they're irritated and they're frustrated by the lostness. And that's not our right right to be frustrated. Um, it, it, we're meant to be compassionate. And then the very next thing it says is, so he began to teach them many things. Um, and so the most compassionate thing we can do in, in such a lost world is to teach many things about Jesus. Um, as much as we can, point them to Jesus. Um out of a spirit of, of compassion for people. And presumably that that applies in the whole Black Lives Matter because that must be huge and it's massive over here, but presumably it's even bigger where you are. And yeah. how, how how's the church handling that in terms of what's the is there a sense that people say that's gone and move on, or is there a real sense of no, we've got to engage at a deeper level here with this? It, it's such a live issue and it it's been you know, hugely politicised, which then doesn't help anyone think or listen clearly because you're either a fascist or a Marxist before you've even done anything. Um, you know, Nashville, Tennessee is one of the most churched cities in America and yet, you know, it's often often been said one of the most segregated hours of the week in Nashville is 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Um and that is that has got to be shameful, and it's it's got the onus has got to lie primarily with the the majority white Christian culture to actually to be taking the lion's share the responsibility for that. Um, there are so many deep historic wounds that are still deeply felt, um, things that have have not been reckoned with, things that have not been spoken of hurts that have not been properly understood and stories that have not been listened to. So there's there's a lot of work to be done, but um this is this is Jesus thing. This is what he does. And you know it's it's part of God's wisdom in Ephesians three is is reconciling the two into to a new humanity and and that that being how God shows his manifold wisdom to the spiritual authorities and powers. This is how God blows a raspberry to the devil is by saying, hey, no one else can reconcile this group of people to, to themselves, but I can. And it's going to be part of our prophetic witness. Um, it, it's going to be how we, how the gospel turns heads in the coming years, it's going to be through the church bringing together people who otherwise would never have anything to do with each other. I mean, as, as leaders, we can be very, very super spiritual. He's one new man in Christ, age, background, ethnicity. We had English-speaking churches, we had Hindi-speaking churches. Hey, why, why can't we do that together? Surely that's going to be an expression of one new man in Christ. And then the overwhelming challenges of what that looks like in terms of people stop coming, sharing lives together. What are... What are some of the things that needs to happen in, in U.S., well, and England, but in the U.S. particularly where you are in terms of trying to address this issue at grassroots rather than in a conceptual preaching way? Yeah, I think a key thing is just listening to the experiences of, of minority church members. What, what, what's it like being someone from your background in this church? What greats that wouldn't even occur to me that would be an issue for you? I think part of the challenge is there's, there's a difference between being welcoming and being 
integrated. An Asian-American friend of mine over in the States said to me once that actually the difference between being welcome and actually being part of something is when you're at home somewhere, you get to put your stuff up. And he said, too many churches are welcoming, but actually what they're doing is they're welcoming into you into their white cultural church experience. So they want you to be part of it. But actually what shows that you're at home and that you're integrated is that you are then starting to shape that culture. And that was such a, a clarifying moment for me because I suddenly realized up until then, I had been giving a genuine welcome, but I was saying, you're welcome to come to the church that is done like this. And this being a very white, middle-class, tertiary-educated kind of thing. And it made me realize, okay, it, it's only really, a you know, the, the difference between being the guest in the house and part of the family in the house is you can put your pictures up if you're part of the family. <laughs> you get to pick some of the furniture. So it's made me realize that one of the signs that we'll, we'll be making progress is that we as, as church leaders will start to feel culturally slightly less at home. I talked to another pastor in New York City who had just appointed, you know, congregation in Manhattan, lots of Asian Americans there. He just appointed an African-American worship leader. And he said to her, your job is to make all of us a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, if, if there's someone who loves the way everything is done, it's probably not a good sign. If we're trying to be a multi-ethnic expression of the body of Christ, it should mean that all of us are a bit uncomfortable about something. There's something stylistic that each of us slightly grates at and thinks, I, don't, I really don't like the way we do that. But that's a sign that we're all making cultural compromises for the sake of one another. And so leadership is going to be key in this. Biblical leadership, men and women leading out of a purity and a devotion to Christ. Can you just comment on your observations? Obviously, you've had quite a bit of, a, of experience. You, you were part of the RZIM in terms of being a recognized speaker in that whole movement. And sadly, there's been these key leaders like Ravi and others that in this last year, two years, have high profile being revealed and exposed or had to step out of ministry. Are there some sort of sober sort of addresses you would speak to me, speak to leaders that I represent saying, listen, this is this is it. This is what it's all about. This is what I want to impart to you to cut through the sort of veneer of a performance, of a sermon, of a profile picture, what is it at a heart level that we, we need as leaders to keep having to be reminded of, to keep our feet on the ground and our love for Jesus pure? It's so fundamental. Um, two things I keep coming back to, and they're, they're not, in one sense, they're not rocket science, but one is just the significance of plural leadership. That you, you don't end up with churches that end up being monarchies because that, you know, whenever the Bible speaks about church elders, it speaks about church elders in the plural, and there's there's a reason for that. So that that's one thing is to think, where is the where is the horizontal accountability within the leadership of any particular local church? Who gets to disagree with you? I spent some time a while ago at the Village Church in, in Texas with, with Matt Chandler, and he's yeah, he's a strong personality. He's naturally a very strong leader. He's a very sort of alpha male type guy. But I was really impressed that he, he told me that, you know, they have a group of elders there, and they vote, and they do occasionally outvote Matt. He says, there are times when I lose the vote. And I thought, wow. that, that's got to be healthy. Yeah, uh, He's not just ruling the roost. And, you know, I've, I've come from more of an Anglican background in, in the UK, but I've seen too many churches where the, the guy at the top, actually, he is the one who ultimately makes all the decisions. And his strengths and weaknesses then get magnified throughout the entire church family. And there's no counterbalancing of that so that that's one thing is is just where we have that plural eldership the second thing is um and this this is particularly being highlighted by what went on with with ravi zacharias this is an urgent question for for every christian but especially for every church leader and pastor is who do you confess your sins to james 5 verse 13 or whatever it is says confess your sins to one another. In one sense, it's easier confessing sins simply to God because we know God knows us anyway and we, we don't have any face to lose with him because he already knows all the worst stuff. There's something essential and necessary in the Christian life about confessing our sins to one another. Having other people who know the worst things about us, who know what, what we really do grapple with, what 
what we struggle with, um, who can mediate correction at times, encouragement, reassurance. In other words, in both of those things, plural leadership and, and having people that we confess our sins to, both of those keep us the right kind of low, in a low posture before the Lord. And most of the problems we're seeing with Christian leadership are where there's the self-importance takes over. People begin to think they really are a big deal. They love the status or the power or the influence or the, the bossiness, the in charge, whatever it is. And we, we just need to keep staying low before the Lord, being aware of our own failings, not being in, not not having the kind of view of leadership that thinks, gosh, if people knew I was a weak man, that would undermine my leadership. But actually to think, no, if people know that I'm a weak man, actually that that is part of my leadership. I'm leading the church in repentance. And therefore, I've, I've got to be the one who models repentance myself. One of my, my pastors in Nashville is a man called Ray Ortland. He, he opened a sermon once that the, the topic was on sexual obedience. And I can't remember what passage he was, he was going, going through that Sunday. But he opened the sermon by saying, your pastor is a sexual sinner. He said, I'm, I, you know, by God's grace, I'm not looking at porn and I'm not cheating on my wife. But he said, if you knew some of the thoughts that went through my head, I don't think you'd want to be my friend. You could feel the whole congregation kind of dialing in at that point and going, oh, wow, okay, this is real. Um, whereas if we feel we have to teach from a, a, a kind of posture of I'm the success and I'm above it all and I've got everything more together than everybody else, and that's what it means to be a leader, we're actually going to make it hard for anyone to confess their sins. Maybe uh, just drawing this beautiful chat together into that final sort of thought, I think the world that you and I are living in loves celebrity, loves status. Church leaders can succumb to this. What, how big is your church? Have you written a book? How many people like you on Facebook? Or you've done a tweet uh, on Twitter. I mean, I always... I do have to laugh at, at Twitter when I first got involved with Twitter. You know, you'd make a what you thought was an excellent sort of out of the blue sky thought of a quote, and you might get seven people putting a love button, a like button on it, and then you read something that Andrew Wilson does, which you think that's pretty mediocre, and it's like three thousand likes, <laughs> and you you can find yourself losing your inner walk with Jesus and think I've got to be more clever, I've got to be more uh, uh, brilliant on the stage, I've got to I've got to write a book. Um, and and that means we tend to then hide because we've got feet of clay. And I, I've had it said to me on a many many occasions as a compliment. You and Heather are very ordinary. You're, you're very ordinary. And every time that said to me, there's something in me that wants to be a little bit a little bit better than ordinary in terms of how we're perceived. Um, and yet I feel for the sort of the lessons that God is driving us to for leadership for the future, I think we need to be led by servant leaders and men and women who walk with a, walk with a limp, are seen to walk with a limp and unashamed to walk with a limp. A, a sign-off from Sam Albury to our leaders in terms of what sort of encouraged them to be the sort of men and women God's wanting them to be. What would you want to say to us? Just thank you for having me as part of this conversation, Guy. I've so appreciated the times that we've we've intersected. So to your pastor brothers, my pastor brothers with, with you there. I say respect and, and love the work you are all doing as a as a network. My my encouragement I hope would be that the world is encouraging us all the time to want to be impressive. And we each have our own metric of what impressive looks like. It, it's the size of the congregation, it's the numbers of followers, it's you know, all those kinds of things. A bigger blessing than being impressive is being known. And those two things don't go together. If you want to be impressive, you are choosing a path where you will not be known. Because the only way you can be impressive is by hiding <laughs> so many things about yourself that are unimpressive. And similarly, the more known you are, the less impressive you are. But one, one trends you towards popularity but isolation. The other trends you towards maybe a smaller group of people but who really do get you, who really do... Mm -hmm 
love you, who really do know you. And that is what's going to keep us healthy in, in the long run, as, as not just as pastors, but as, as followers of, of Jesus, as Christians. That's beautiful. Well, Sam, it's been an absolute joy to speak. And uh, I can remember when I first met you. Uh, it was one of Terry's bashes. And yes. we sat late into the evening over supper. And uh, I came back and Heather said, will you stop talking about this guy called Sam? <laughs> she said, it sounds like you're in love with him. I said, he's just such a beautiful spirit. And, I, and again, listening to you, opening my eyes to uh, a whole vista of ways of seeing the world, seeing the church. I really appreciate you. You've served us brilliantly at West Point, and I'm sure you'll serve us again either here at Westminster Chapel. I'm thinking you're coming here somewhere soon, aren't you? And then I'm sure when we can get back into festivals, I'm sure we'll be yeah. uh, interacting again. I've been blessed knowing you guys, so so thank you for, yeah. thank you for having me. No, it's really good. So thanks, Sam. And God bless you and all you're doing. I pray you can get out of Bermuda and get to Tennessee. Thank you for listening to the Adventure Together podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. To find out more about Commission, visit www.commission.global.